Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. In the Pack Filler Studios, I'm Pat Bolger. It is time for another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. Pre-recording this one on a Sunday because we had a whole lot of conflicts in terms of schedule. So this is a pretty special episode that we wanted to get out to you. And I, I wanted to find the opportune moment to make sure it really had its own kind of standalone. Uh, we had a great guest in the studio and I will introduce that guest to you here shortly. But before I get to that, this podcast, of course, brought to you by our friends over at Giant Bicycles. Welcome to the Ultimate Cycling Experience. How do you define the Ultimate Cycling Experience? You know what? That's up to you. But the mission at Giant is to help make it happen, to create the ultimate cycling experience for all riders all around the world. When they talk about ride life, guess what? That's what they mean. Their products, their people, their passion, commitment to enhancing your cycling life. You can find them at more than 12 thousand retail stores around the world go to your lbs test ride a giant and you're never going to go back or connect with them online whenever you are wherever you are they are always accessible and never too far away ride life ride giant there we go special edition of the pack Phillip podcast you guys before i get to our guest I've been flooded with people talking to me about this dream club we spoke about in our last episode. If you want to go back and, and hear my my dreams and my ideas and weird things that kick around in my head in the middle of the night, you can hear about the ultimate cycling club experience. I have people saying that they'd be willing to sign up, willing to become a member, willing to help make it happen. I, I was just joking at first, but now it seems like I'm going to have to go real estate shopping and find a sugar daddy to take care of all my financial woes, right? So if you're out there, come on, let's do it. Let's make a cycling club. There we go. <laughs> you guys, today on the show, we uh, Carson aligned a very special guest for us, uh, Dr. Sarah Mitchell. And uh, my introduction talks more about her when I actually have the recording of the show, but a really cool insight into 
the psychological aspects that go into the sport, a really great, great insight into uh, the Paralympic division of, of sports and all those wonderful things. Karsten was on line one, Sarah Mitchell was on the other one, and we had a good time talking about some fun stuff and maybe getting to the root of all the things that Karsten Hagen is really struggling with. And, and me and my self-depreciating humor. And uh, Sarah was really, really cool at dealing with me asking the stupid questions. But she also had some incredible insight into some really, really interesting elements of things we all do and challenges many of us all have in front of us. So without further ado, Dr. Sarah Mitchell on the Pack Filler Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Pack Filler. I am Pat Bulger. We have a special episode today, not one of our usual live broadcasts. I, uh, it is not 6 p.m. I don't have a beer in front of me. I'm actually in studio, but we have some guests on the line. First guest, a sports psychologist with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. She is the first and only USAC, USOC sport psycho, psychologist. Boy, I'm stumbling over that. Dedicated to the Paralympic Division. Let's welcome to the show Dr. Sarah Mitchell. How are you, Sarah? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is, uh, I'm looking forward to having a conversation. Good, good. And of course, on the uh, on the line is our, our resident diva and president of the Disc Brake Advancement Society, the one and only Karsten Hagen. Good morning. <laughs> um, and, and Sarah, if you could honor me with a, a little pause here in the in the action, because I do have to put Karsten on the on the spot here. And yeah. um, and now that I have him actually on the line, I want to double check on his interest on the pack filler break challenge with Paul Maine and, and why that hasn't happened yet. Uh, I have to get to Spokane with a road bike, <laughs> which logistically is really difficult at the moment. Um, it'll happen. Hopefully it happens when the road's wet and I'm on tubeless tires. <laughs> oh man! So I can, we can, we can, you know, I can disprove Paul's uh, theories about both products. Okay. Okay. Well, I had to, I had to put you on the spot, man, because uh, you know I, I am getting a lot of people saying, hey, you know, you, you guys did this challenge. Uh, the bet was placed and the bet was uh, established. Paul clearly lost, but then this. This disc brake versus rim brake challenge came about, and um, everybody's getting really excited about it. And then all of a sudden, it'll happen. Uh, it'll we, happen. You literally put the brakes on it. <laughs> Have a job, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whatever. All right, enough of the silly stuff. Uh, Sarah, first of all, thanks for being here. Um, I like to start interviews with a little bit of perspective. I love I love hearing background and kind of getting a feel of what's how the person came to be where they are. And um, so tell me what your your background is um, in endurance sports and how you came about uh, to the realm of sports psychology. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, yeah, I'm happy to share. I will say that I think sports psychology chose me, maybe more so than I chose it. I started out as a soccer player, um, played for years. I loved it. I was you know, cycling around on three different teams. I was very, very selective and focused early on. But then I had an injury um, that sort of led me to some time off, some recovery, and I got into running. And again, I just happened to be sort of floating through life, trying to um, just figure out what the best path for me was going to be. I I have these parents that are artists, and they're very sort of... (laughs) Uh, I don't know, esoteric. And so they gave me a lot of space, if you will, to discover my own path. So I was kind of floating around and I was like, oh, what's the most different from 
um, being a pianist and a ballet dancer. Oh, an athlete. <laughs> That's right. Where there are like rules, right? And and every ballerina that just heard me say that will be so pissed at me, but it's <laughs> honest, right? Like it's a very different, it's a different world. And certainly ballet is athletic, but it was just a different world that I was drawn to. And um, Jack, who was the high performance coach out in Flagstaff, was coaching some elite athletes and um, Olympic hopefuls and was like, happened to see me running around and asked me if I would train with some of his athletes. And then one thing led to another, I had a great coach and I started running uh, distance on the road and that was great. Um, but again, going back to my story, my, you know, my mother dropped out of high school at 14 to pursue a uh, her passion and pursue professional ballet dancing. Oh, wow. And my father's a musician. So, you know, there aren't a ton of super highly educated folks in my background necessarily. So when I had the opportunity to go to grad school and I applied just to one program on a whim, um, I, I took it because it felt like a chance to really honor my family and honor um, sort of where I came from and, and lift us up if you will. So, and you know, my sports psychology specifically, I think having been an athlete and having a passion and an understanding of mind body yeah. and how like psychophysiology, we often say, right. How those different facets of experience intersect, um, in a way that can either facilitate performance or well-being, um, quality of life or inhibit it is something that has always been relevant in my world. Wow. I, 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 and this is, again, self-depreciating. I, I just took psychology when I started in high school because I thought the word was cool. Okay. Well, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, I knew. I knew going into that world of, like, I started in research and science and neuropsych yeah. and psychophys. And, like, that was so different from the world of art. And, yeah. you know, I had started working with tutors at six years old um, because I was going to be a studio artist and that's what oh, my wow. parents really wanted for me. And so for me to like delve into that world, it was, I knew it was an act of rebellion um, and I'm not sh really sure who it benefited, but <laughs> at the end of the day, I suppose here I am. So Yeah. It's such yeah. an, it's uh, not, no offense. It's such almost like an opposite path. You hear of usually of the, of the lawyer dad and the doctor mom who are forcing oh, totally. their kids to do something very focused. And then this is the complete reversal of that, where you've got these free open minds and these, uh, these artists totally. who want you to do all that. That's what a, what a flip. It is a flip. I think the thing that you're tapping into is actually more of a personality piece and you, it has yeah. more to do with, like, you know, my dad is half Russian. Well, really, I'd say that he's, he, we say Russian American because he was born in the United States, but his parents are Russian, right? So that focused intensity is not something that skipped our family culture. That is for sure. Yeah. So whatever I did, I did 110%. Like wow. I was just not your normal kid. Yeah. Like I said, I, uh, I started working with tutors for painting at a really young age. I was competing in these drawing competitions. I would stress out over drawing for, I had to, I had in my mind, I had to work on my sketchbook three hours a day, every day, wow. every day. And even, and I was like adding it up. Yeah. So I was like totally that super intense kid that really believed that, um, 
you know, the pathway to success is hard work. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Which yeah. is which is a complete transition to athletics and and doing that sort of things. So, I mean, oh, I was, totally. Yeah, if totally. I if I'm not on my bike for two days in a row, that guilt starts to that shadow starts to come in, and all of a sudden I'm like going, oh my god, everybody's going to beat me, even though I'm not racing competitively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like you lose your sense of self. It's sort of yeah. strange, right? You're like, how do I do? I even know how to ride a bike. Wait, <laughs> what is a bike? What? Wait, who am I? Right? Like oh. I, I go down that path too. It happens all the Therapy. time. So, yeah, you're, you're sure. tapping into something that <clears throat> Pat and I talk about a lot on the podcast, and that you know, as masters racers, I mean, he, he and I have both been racing our entire lives. We started racing together as kids. And, uh, you know, you do, you really do. It's almost, you know, it's almost an, an, an addiction sort of, um, issue where you, your, your entire self worth and self-esteem and identity is, is becomes, you know, bike racing. Yeah. Yeah. And so moving away from it is, uh, it's, it's like a specter. You just, (laughs) it's always there. Yes, it is indeed. Yeah. And it feels like your identity is at risk of dying, right? Oh God. Yeah. When you when you when you neglect that part of yourself. Yeah. Oh my. And so like I'm sure I almost imagine the next question I would ask is like, how do you do with recovery? Right? Because <laughs> that's a big part of being successful in sport is knowing how to uh, let your body rest and adapt to the physiological changes that the training should elicit. Um, but that fear comes up, that anxiety. I can't tell you how many athletes hate tapering. Yeah. It's uh, something else. Oh, my God. So how did this opportunity to work with the USOC come about? Being the first and, and only person in this position doing what you're doing, yeah. what, a, what an opportunity. What an opportunity, right? So I specialize. So I went to grad school for including my master's program, which was separate in health psych um, at NAU, I went to school for almost a decade. Um, And I really, I I specialized in sports psychology early on. I knew this is my personality that I had, I was going to either go all the way or not at all. Right. So I went all in and I, and I went through this generalist program in Texas and it just so happened that one of the directors of the specialization in sports psychology and uh, the Center for Performance Excellence uh, was doing consulting work with the USOPC, was the USOC at that time. Um, So she was doing work and I, she and I connected wonderfully um, and we stayed connected. And so when I had an opportunity to leave Texas as an endurance athlete, you bet your bottom dollar, I jumped at it. I was like, get me out of here. My metatarsals hurt. There's only one trail. Like I used to have to drive 30 minutes to the one flipping trail to run on so I could get some shade. It was really intense. So I was so excited. And I went to Colorado and I, because I also knew that the USOPC was, uh, the headquarters was in Colorado Springs. So we stayed connected. I did, I created an externship with her. Um, and you have to remember like coming from an art background, it's like innovating and being creative. It's kind of, it's like breathing, right? Like you just create opportunities, you create positions. And so that's what I did with her. I did some training with Karen Kogan. And then 
um, I just got so lucky. I decided to stay in Colorado for my internship and then my postdoctoral fellowship. And I, I don't know, it was, I got lucky. A position opened up before I was even done with my postdoc and I slid right in. Wow. But, sort of drinking from the fire hose ever since I feel like. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so this your what is your experience like working with with especially in regards to para athletes and and th- dealing with that type of those types of issues? I can only imagine first of all, you know, any type of an athlete's going to and I personally think that psychology, the psychological realm of 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 athlete of athletics is so overlooked in most cases and i would like to know the difference between dealing with that and then dealing adding into the factor of dealing with paralympic athletes yeah yeah it's super complex i think well you know there are seven full-time usopc sports psychologists currently on staff and each of us has like our area of focus we call them sport folios And so it's interesting being the only person of our seven that's devoted to the Paralympic division, um, sort of the ways in which we have the issues I come across are similar and different. Um, I would say that the medical complexity around uh, progressive or degenerative diseases is, is not something you can overlook, right? So you couple that with also all the pressures and normal stresses of interpersonal uh, interactions within sport and performance and the pressure to uh, show up at a games and be your best when maybe your sleep has been less than optimal, right? Or your nutrition has not been perfect because you've been on the road, all that stuff. So there's a lot of moving parts and it's sort of knowing, being really clear on what you're targeting when you intervene and why i think i'm always asking myself why and and how what's going to help both the athlete's performance but also their well-being overall like for me the client always comes first and and it doesn't matter to me if an athlete is talking to me about quitting sport or they're talking to me about depression or they're talking to me about performance anxiety uh attentional focus like, yeah, I really believe that the athlete is the best expert in themselves and that they get to drive the bus. And I'm there to show them another perspective and to help them discover the resources that they already possess. It's not my job to change anyone. It's not my job to uh, perform miracles or to or perform any magic. I mean, it's just really about reflecting back to you and teaching you how to access your own gifts and abilities and resources. Do you find that specific sports create specific challenges within the, within the athletes themselves? Some tend to lean one direction, some to the other. Yeah, totally. I think that's a super interesting question. I'm sure you've experienced it in both of you have experienced it in your own lives. Every group has its own culture and that culture Um, can be derived from a legacy, right? Or it can be somewhat new. So if we're talking about cycling, of course, cycling historically is a closed system. You know, I've ridden here and there, raced a bit here and there, but really I've never identified as a cyclist and it is darn hard to break into that system. It takes time. It takes 
patience. And I think um, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that I do with cycling. And, and I should say, like, you know, we at the USOPC help each other out within the sports psychology professional team. So I certainly work with certain Olympic athletes here and there. I do one-offs if it seems like it's a really good fit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Um, and what, go ahead, Carson. Sarah, I've got a question. So how long, and this is sort of out of left field, but how long has um, Paris Sport been an, its own entity at USOC? I don't know, actually. That's a very good question. You'll discover, I'm, I'm never going to bullshit you. I, if I don't know something, I don't know. Let's look and see. Do we know? Is it on that website we were looking at? I don't know. I think it's been a while. How's okay. that for an answer? <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is, is just I have the no history. idea. So, yeah, I mean, I feel it's at least, what, like 10, 15 <clears throat> years. I mean, we separated from the Olympic side of the house, really, because of funding, right? So the way that it works at the USOPC is that funding is trickled down based on performance on metal impact, right? So if we're all pulling from the same pot of money, para always came last. Yeah. So we were like, hey guys, we would like funding to support our athletes to evolve and, and uh, increase the depth and competitiveness of the field, blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, they separated. I think it's an interesting argument and it's a conversation I love having though is like, is it better to specialize in Olympic versus Paralympic, or is it, or is it better to specialize in certain sports, right? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think if we're going back to the conversation about sport culture. There are just some, uh, I don't know. There are just some sports that I feel like intuitively you get, and this is my own experience. Other people maybe don't operate the same way, but I just, they're like, like for me, flow sports, sports where we're talking about line, where we're talking about feel, yeah. and we're talking about sort of modulating an effort, we're talking about sort of an internal awareness and, and self-regulation while also being sort of attuned to movement around you, um, all that, like those are the kind of sports that I very much gravitate towards and I feel like I instinctively understand a bit better than say i don't know others yeah and, and when you're talking yeah. when you're talking about para versus olympic sports um i mean and please forgive me if i get to any point where i'm, yeah. I'm sounding insulting or something like that because it's it, maybe it's just a bit uh, in terms of ignorance i i don't necessarily have the perspective of people dealing with uh, with those types of challenges but I can only imagine that that in some cases the mental load you you were talking about people with uh, you know diseases and 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 things like that that are that are that are increasing or debilitating or something like that. I can only yeah. imagine the mental strain would be quite a bit more severe in terms of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I read research recently that said actually uh, I was looking at what what they were calling. Um, elite and super elite Olympians. So elite being like Olympians that maybe like you just make a games versus super elite where you medal at multiple games. Yeah. And the, uh, I think one out of five athletes was reporting some kind of uh, severe trauma in their background. So I think 
The wow. truth is that trauma and psychological uh, distress, difficulty, overcoming adversity is actually not that uncommon on both sides of the house. Wow. It's just that it's been stigmatized and shunned historically um, within yours and, and my able-bodied world, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that should that should tell you something, right? Like one out of five athletes, that's, that's significant. And, and these are, is, these are issues that are, is this something that comes across your desk? You're having to deal with these plus the performance issues on top of that. Totally. And so what you do is the best you can. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. So you just do the best you can. And, and I'm always, like I said, I'm always sort of, uh, working to, be in the service of the person that is my identified client. And if that means referring that athlete to, or even a program to someone who's local or someone who can help them manage a more severe uh, clinical concern, I'm going to do that. Um, because really we want to be safe, right? Yeah. We don't want to be in Switzerland and um, I'm having to manage a suicidal athlete back in the States. So that athlete, in a case like that, I would uh, connect them with a local psychiatrist and or behavioral health expert or psychologist. And, and then I, and then that frees us up to talk about performance and, and they feel really supported with this like structure around them of people who are checking in. Do you, and that's all new. Yeah. I've like, I've like these processes. I'm just like, it's trial by fire. You know, I'm like sink or swim. I figure it out as I go. Yeah. And, and I love the dynamics of that. And it's, you know, it's a lot. Do you experience pushback? Um, in my experiences, every, a lot of people think of, of, uh, psychological therapy, whatever it may be as some sort of a, I, okay, it's, I'm really hurting now. I need to do this. And, and especially yeah. it seems like in terms of a, here I am on the West Coast and East Coast, it seems to be a lot more open to that idea. But here it seems to be like, oh, you only go when there's something wrong, that, you know, type yeah. of mentality. Do you find pushback in, with athletes you know, instead of the, oh, I'd need to just suck it up and pedal harder kind of that mentality? Yeah, yeah totally. Right. Like it, it is interesting. It's much it just depends on the athlete or the sport culture they're coming from. But for sure. Yeah, there's pushback. There's. Uh, feeling like, um, you know, a wishing that maybe it was a physical explanation for what's going on. At the same time, I've seen coaches and others make things psychological that I'm like, dude, they're just tired. Yeah. Maybe they need to sleep better, right? <laughs> like, it's not all that complex after all. And so I think it's just a matter of, yeah, it's like not having too much ego at stake. You know, if they if they don't have if they don't want what I have to offer, I don't need to go chase ambulances. Yeah. I just need to, like I said, do the best I can. And if it's if it's not enough, it's not enough. I just really work at acceptance. OK, what what's your frequency? How often how often do you work with athletes? Is it on a daily basis? Is it on a competitive realm? Do you check in with them or are you with them during the events? How does that all work out? All of that, yeah. So there are athletes that I'll meet with regularly for periods of time um, in between events. There are other programs that I travel with. Um, we call them NGBs, so National Governing Bodies. 
um, that I travel with and I'm on in the field of play with the athletes leading up to major events. Um, and I check in with them there or I offer group mindfulness sessions, which you know is something that I'm very passionate about and I believe is sort of the uh, it's the constant, if you will, through everything that I do is that sort of present focus and being really um, able to uh, self-regulate. So that's that's stuff I do all the time. Um, <clears throat> you know, I work a lot, um, but we're growing our provider network. So that's great. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty much if sometimes it feels like a little more intense, especially during a games year as we progress through the quad. Um, but yeah. I'm, I'm pretty much every day, I'm not pretty much, I'm definitely interacting with an athlete, either remotely or in person. I have an office in Colorado Springs, but I'm on the road so much that I find, uh, and, and many of our athletes don't necessarily live in Colorado Springs. Some do, certainly, but a lot um, are, they're just all over the place. So um, I find I'm having a remote session yeah all the time i just finished one actually yeah we were before i hit the recorder you were talking about the fact that you're sitting on a patio and dealing with this type of thing and that that's becoming a yeah. new trend in this yeah yeah telehealth is uh it it makes sense right it makes sense to to do whatever you can in my mind to do whatever you can to be there to support people when they need it regardless right and yeah. so it's figuring out how we do the sort of state-by-state -state licensing thing, the international boundary thing, figuring out the ethics and legalities of all of that so that we're able to provide uh, best practices to our athletes, teams, and, and NGBs. And I think that's a, it's a, an evolving conversation, but one that's really important. And certainly, um, you know, when you work, I'm sure you're this way too, right? Like when you work this much, you... Uh, like the gift of being able to work from a patio is priceless, <laughs> right? Like you need that. You need that little bit of like, okay, I may have worked 80 hours this week, but at least I get to look at a lake. <laughs> and that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like at least it's all like looking for that grain of, oh, yeah. of, of satisfaction or joy. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I know what you mean I, to the realm. I gotta that I'm... say, I gotta interject. Go. I really prefer cubicles, uh, especially, um, <laughs> beige one, um, you know, yes. and I, I it did just staring at a cubicle wall for, you know, 10 hours a day. I just, I can't think of anything better. The atrophy of your haunches is calling, right? Yeah. Like that's so <laughs> awful. I can't even imagine. You're so tall, too. You'd be, like, looking o like over it, over oh. the cube. That, what, the last time I worked in an office with, with cubicles, that's exactly what happened. Like, I just couldn't – I had to get up and just look out over the sea of other cubicles just, just to get my brain, like, freed. But, so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, many work, working remotely is wonderful. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. And cubicles, I feel like, I, I don't know, I'm just not cut from that cloth. I try to be a nine-to-fiver, but obviously that's just, I'm grateful that I have a job that allows me not to be that. A couple thoughts in there. First of all, um, I'm sitting in a basement room that was a garage now converted into a podcast studio. <laughs> yes. And uh, and second of all, I have a feeling some of our listeners are probably sitting 
in a cubicle right now. And um, we, yeah. yeah we, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so empathic of you. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they might be in a cubicle, but, you know, hopefully they have really good boundaries with work and they get to get outside. Yeah, there you we know, go. And, or, or whatever it is that drives them. For me, what drives me is, like, feeling like I've done a good job. I just want to do a good job in this life. Like, bottom line, I don't care what it is I'm doing. I want to do good at it, period. And getting outside. Like, I, I for me, fresh air is, like, you know, it's, it's, it's everything. I need to be outside. Well, we're kind of drifting into that direction. So if I could ask you about some issues that, that athletes across the board tend to deal with. And the first sure. and foremost issue that usually seems to come up is, is motivation. Um, keeping things going, keeping um, out there, uh, focusing on, on what you need to do, obtaining that goal and, and, and striving towards some of those things. Um, in, in your experience, what are some of the stumbling blocks in dealing with motivation and maintaining those types of things? Yeah, I think it's it goes kind of connects back to what we were talking about before in terms of what we attribute the issue to. So athletes struggling with motivation. I mean, the first question I ask is like, what's going on for you? Where do you normally derive motivation? Is it internal or external? And what's that about for you? What does it mean to be motivated? Um, when was the last time you took some time off? Uh, what does the arc of your training look like? And so there's, you know, issues around motivation are definitely common. And at the highest levels, generally people are pretty internally most motivated. We say intrinsically, but that's yeah. sort of a weird psychology word. But so I like to just use regular words. Um, so intrinsically motivated, right? Like yeah. people do things like you don't go out there and choose to put yourself in physical pain uh, when nobody's watching unless you're intrinsically motivated, yeah. right? You do it because you love it, because there's something else driving you. So what is that? What is that that's driving you? What was it that was driving me at six years old to be drawing for three hours every day in my sketchbook? What was that? That wasn't my parents. That was my desire to be to do a good job. And I, and I ascribe, like many athletes, to the equation, when I was younger anyway, that, like, you know, hard work plus discipline leads to the best outcome, right? But the problem is, is, like, we don't factor in other stuff, like getting injured. That's not how it works, right? You're not supposed to, like, do a good job and then get injured and then you can't perform or you can't train or you can't do whatever. So it's... It's wrapping your mind around all that, I think, all that impacts motivation. I think also an interesting thing that I don't get to talk about a lot, um, but I, I love thinking about this and it's it really rings true is when athletes don't have a coach or someone guiding the work, they, um, they often struggle with direction and direction listeness feels like a lack of motivation. So I hope if you're listening or for you all, if you hear that and you're struggling with that lack of directionless direction, that you will think about whether or not you have guidance and seek it out. Wow. Yeah. No, that yeah. that's, and I, 
motivation seems to be some of those, you know, I've, I personally deal with it on a regular basis, and you just kind of hit the nail on the head. I've come from a background of cycling since I was 12 years old. And for so many years, there were coaches involved. And now, because I, I've come to this mental state where I think I know enough to train myself and keep myself going, it becomes a, it becomes a solo journey. And that probably is a gigantic stumbling block. It's a giant stumbling block and it's not about like A plus B plus C. It's not about knowing enough. It's about having the collective synergy and momentum that comes from more than one person believing in a goal or a dream or a vision, right? It's about that creative sharing. And I think if you if you come from... Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but if you come from years of being yeah. in, in teams and on that, I think uh, that feels like a major loss. And there's a period of grieving, too, that happens for many athletes when they transition out of that environment. Yeah. Um, but we don't call it that, right? We don't call it that. There's also grief that happens when you fail to meet your goals or the expectations you've set for yourself or others have set for you. Every time you experience a loss, there's grief. And yet, um, you know, sport is a game of losses. So it's interesting. There's, I've never there's... thought of it that way. And that's that's <clears throat> pretty profound, you know, really, because, um, you know, I've quit racing, like definitively quit racing and riding a couple times in my life. And it, it's, boy, it, it's very difficult to, to um, you know, uh, move on really and find other stuff yeah. you gotta you know, i gotta i always gotta have something and yeah. it's it's very difficult to find focus really um and if yeah. it's grieving if <clears throat> if gr- grieving is what you're gonna call it that's uh that's that's spot on that's something that a lot of athletes probably don't recognize as such yeah 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 and it feels it feels sad it feels isolating it feels angering you get confused yeah totally there's so many ups and downs but the biggest thing is feeling that isolation and i think you know you have to remember we're social animals even though you like being on your bike for hours alone god damn it you're a social animal (laughs) and you feed off each other's energy and and i do too i'm an introvert i'm shy i'm little I prefer not to be the center of attention, all those things. I'm perfectly happy on a trail in the woods right now. And and yet I know that when that I gain energy from that collective, from being a part of some of something that feels uh, like we're moving towards towards something bigger. I don't know, towards a goal, whatever it is. And and I think um, it's okay to ask for support too, to does it make you weaker? Does it mean that you're, it's not normal? I think going back to something we were talking about, I don't know, a little while ago in terms of like what's normal and what's not normal, it's totally normal to feel the full spectrum of emotion. And um, when you transition away or into something, change is hard. Good stress, what bad was, stress, it's all stress in the body. Cycling is so all-inclusive. It, it, you know, you, your, your entire um, social life can, you know, be, become totally intertwined with it. I realize myself that, you know, if I move away from riding, most of my friends that I have are 
fellow cyclists and the, most of my social interaction with them is on bikes. But if I was going to move away from that, you know, you got to find a whole new, you know, we are, we are social animals. You're, you're absolutely right. So how do you find that new, you know, group of people to associate with? Yeah. It's a big, yeah. Task. It's a big question. And, and I guess my first reaction is like, well, why don't we look inside ourselves to see what our instincts are telling us and, and who are you? Who are you off the bike? What do you love? What do you care about? Because it's, it's while the bike matters, it doesn't matter. Oops, did I say that? It matters, <laughs> but it doesn't matter, right? Like who you are is who you are wherever you go. And so let's figure out those bigger uh, issues and those bigger things that are driving you. And, I, and I'll bet you'll find a way to, to find a sense of belonging and connection regardless of where you are or what you're doing. And that, I, I'll, be, I'll be really honest, a lack of belongingness um, is one of the highest risk factors for suicide, is a sense of lack of belongingness. And, and I'm saying that having done a postdoc where I specialized in chronically suicidal folks, and I specialized in interpersonal uh, theories of suicide, right? So I, I can tell you, like, that's the thing. So imagine how many athletes are out there that feel sort of socially ostracized, unintentionally, often, you know, excluded, because they've left sport, and there they are, with a lack of belongingness or a lack of sense of community. I think of professional cyclists who have retired and have entered into gigantic yeah. realms of of depression, of of drug and alcohol abuse. Um, we, you know, we lost yeah. the great Marco Pantani many years ago to to suicide yeah. and things like that. And because I was just talking to a guy yesterday who hasn't been a competitive cyclist for probably seven, eight years, maybe. And and I looked down at him and I saw his legs were still shaved. And I said, even though you're not a even though you're not riding, you're always a cyclist, aren't you? And and he laughed and he said, Yeah, I can't. I, I he says I always will practice the specific elements of of the sport, even though I'm not necessarily out there riding. And just identifying yourself as something. When somebody asks me about myself, I I, I always hate saying my job first. Well, I'm a yeah. teacher or something like that. But a cyclist is something usually that comes out. And and just like you're saying, the bike, is is it about the bike? Sorry to use a term from a guy I don't like. Um, <laughs> it's not about the bike. Yeah. It's not about the bike. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I know. Um, yeah, totally. It comes out. And then, and then do you, like, beat yourself up where you're like, man... I'm so much, it's so much more complicated. Yeah. You need to understand. I'm a complex human. I'm more than just a cyclist. Whatever that means, right? Like if that's a, that's a loaded identity. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully though, like we don't divorce ourselves of our past and we, because then we can't learn from it. And so like my, my wish for you or for myself or for anyone is really just to, be able to integrate the important parts of who we were into who we are and then let the rest go, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Talk to me about the challenge of when athletes are dealing with um, 
injury and recovery and coming back from time off. I always know that was always something I had a difficult time. I injured my back a couple weeks ago. Carson, you can make fun of me as soon as I stop talking. Injured my back a couple weeks ago and the guilt and the pressure of going, okay, I should be out doing something. I should be outside. It's a beautiful day. It's the last 80 degree day of the summer. Get out, go, go, go. Right. Yeah. That's, that's all, that's all fodder for session, my friend. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Like it, you, you, uh, you encounter that a lot of internal dialogue, I think. Okay. So I'm going to be serious though. I'll think about this. So my response to you really is that like, um, we internalize the voices of the important others in our lives, right? Like coaches or family members, parents, and that becomes sometimes the voice we use internally to motivate ourselves. And sometimes that voice is fucking critical. Yeah. Sometimes that voice is mean, but it becomes the thing we think we need in order to get out the door. It's almost like, you know, I don't know. I, I, I tend to procrastinate. I'm like that perfectionist procrastinator. I don't know if you all are familiar with that personality set, <laughs> but it's, it's like, if I can't do something perfectly. I'm not doing it. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till I can give it everything I've got. Right. Yeah. So, so for me, like at something about putting myself in those situations that are so, so fucking stressful and so like hard is what drives me. Hmm. I wonder where that comes from. Right. Like my <laughs> family of origin, my coaches, my background, but the same for you, right? Like that voice is critical. It's what drives you. And so it's figuring out how can you get out the door when while listening to your body and listening to what it is that your body needs in terms of recovery, in terms of injury, uh, rehab or prevention, whatever it is, while also trusting that you're not going to turn into a sloth on the couch. And if you do so fucking what? Like, that's what your body needs. <laughs> it's like, when are we going to start trusting ourselves? You know? That's no, that's the absolutely the issue dealing with those types of things and, and letting it yeah. be okay to to back off. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Oh, that's yes. a hard one. Yeah. Letting it be okay. <laughs> and that knowing that all of these things are normal. There's nothing like terrifying to me about any of this. Right. We just have to learn to turn towards these difficult emotions or conversations really. And, and it's okay. Like it's all good. It's all fine. Okay. I'm just drinking that in for a second here. Yeah. Yeah. Please <laughs> drink it in. Like I don't, I want to give that to you. Yeah. That's my wish. Yeah. Okay, a lot of my a lot of listeners in this this podcast demographic obviously dealing with a lot of the issues we're talking about, but one of the bigger ones that I always tend to find out is and I don't know what your experience is at, at the realm you're working with. You're probably working with athletes in, in a in a very much of a prime state in terms of physical preparedness. Um, but what I'm talking about is is that aging process and coming to terms with aging and and not being able yeah. to necessarily accomplish some of those things that were that were easily accomplished 5 10 20 years ago. Totally. Yeah, I mean the athletes I see are tend to be in their prime, but you know, something recently that I personally went through was uh getting treatment for breast cancer. Yeah. I got very very sick and you know, coming back from 
you know, two plus years of treatment has been a process where chemotherapy, as you know, is like the anti-doping drug. It's not that amazing. <laughs> and then, right, amongst radiation and biotherapy, like all this other stuff. And it's, it is, it's super hard coming back. It's, it's humbling. It's embarrassing. It's angering. I struggle for sure. That feeling of like, how do I befriend my body when I'm pissed? I'm pissed that I can't do what I used to do. I'm I'm fucking livid and it's okay to be livid. Like it's your right. Don't be afraid of those emotions. Like they're good. It means that you care. And that you want to do a good job going back to that like goal or who you are, right? The thing you value and it's okay. And and it is hard and you're not alone. Like it is totally tough uh, reconciling your desire and your drive and your intensity with uh, reality and where you are physically. Well, and athletes also seem to deal with that on a regular basis. We, and especially in cycling, in this sport, we're dealing with athletes who aren't as fast as they wish to be, and so doping comes into this situation. Yeah, uh, anything sure. to gain that that extra edge. I might not genetically be a gifted enough cyclist, so I'm going to strive to find that edge any way I can. Um, obviously, you know, I, do you come across issues like that where athletes are, I mean, I don't know if obviously for confidentiality rules, you you can't talk about that, but those performance enhancing temptations. I'll I'll tell you as a runner, like that annoys, that annoys me because I'm like, I'm like the way I was trained in the old school coaching method. And, and I, and I still believe this, like, you know, I want to be able to show up barefoot and still run the shit out of you. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter. I That shortcut mentality is clearly not something I value if I went to graduate school for a decade. Right. Yeah. Like I don't <laughs> believe in taking shortcuts. And so I think that that definitely comes out. It's a, it's a mindset, though. Right. It's like, tell me the quick fix. Yeah. Tell me what it is that I can what skill can I learn when really I need like a whole sort of mindset shift, right? So it's uh, it's it's definitely prevalent. And I don't know. Do you feel like millennials are worse? And maybe you're a millennial. No, I'm not. I'm I'm fifty. Okay. You're safe. Okay. 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 Yeah. okay. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right. But like that that idea around like I don't know that the the quick the quick fix the um easy answer, the fast solution, the, I don't know, like that seems to be more and more prevalent. And, and is that something that society has created from them? Or is that, you know, here I am as a parent, have I created that mentality in my, my son and yeah. providing everything? Yeah, yeah totally. In, in hovering or providing everything. Yeah. What, when, where does that come from? It comes from a good place, yeah. right? You probably yeah. don't want to see your kids suffer. And so we jump in and take away the pain. But what we don't realize is that when we do that for athletes, for like as, as support staff or for children as parents, that we're actually undermining their opportunity to learn how to cope with challenge. We're undermining the confidence that comes from knowing that you can handle anything. We're actually undermining their self-confidence. And that could very well lead to the reasons why, for example, cycling numbers are, are decreasing because it is, yep. as, you, as you said at the beginning, it is a sport that requires 
a learning process, a, a growth pattern. And to not be able to achieve success right out of the gates, I'm going to go do something else. Uh, totally, totally. That like being able to tolerate not being the best, um, yeah. you know, it's just different. Like, I don't know. I think I just got my ass kicked so much all the time that yeah. I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. I don't need to be the fastest person here. And I, and I, and it feels like, uh, in certain, uh, cultures, certain sport cultures, like the tolerance of that is just not, it's not there. I don't know what, what creates that, but I certainly know that it's not helpful and it leads to all kinds of anxiety and focus on the wrong things. Yeah. Sarah, you you talked about something briefly a little bit ago um, about how cancer uh, impacted your life. And I'm a fellow cancer survivor. And it's it's amazing um, what kind of impact that disease can have on you physically long term, permanently, you know. And so, you know, I wonder um, in terms of, you know, recovering from something like that dealing with the fact that you're not going to be as fast anymore because of that, not just because of aging, but because, you know, because something that profound, you know, ruined your body to an extent, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's talk about grief and anger. You, you know, I, I, I got very angry myself and it's, um, it, I don't know, I, I'm sort of wandering here, but I, I it's just something that, yeah. that probably needs to be addressed for a lot of people. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of stuck for you. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can talk about this. Um, I'm glad that you brought it up. Thanks, Carson. I think that it's it's really about um, acceptance, right? Like it's okay to be angry, and there's there's layers around like what's socially acceptable for men or for women. Like, is, yeah. is it socially acceptable for a woman to get angry? Not so much. Right. So, so it's all about like how we confront the things that are, uh, what we feel like has been taken from us or given to us. And I, and I think for me, what it brings up is like, who the fuck am I? Really, yeah. like that I'm that entitled to think that I deserve something more than what's right here right now. And and so I, I vacillate between that and feeling very entitled and angry and disappointed and like nobody understands. Right. Because you look fine um, for all intensive purposes, but certainly you don't feel fine. You certainly don't feel fine. Yeah. And your body has betrayed you. And as an athlete. You've spent your entire life learning to trust your body, listen to your body, right? Trust, listen to your body, which is very much a reality for para too, right? Like trust, listen to your body, and yet your body has betrayed you. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah, it's heavy stuff. Yeah. But don't be sad. It's okay. No. It's okay, right? <laughs> like this is this is learning how to tolerate the the shit that's hard and it's beautiful. And it's like okay, well, we're alive and we get to feel things that hurt. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like that hurts and fucking thank you. I wouldn't trade it for a second. I wouldn't trade it to be dead. That's for damn sure. Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry, I I keep coming back to the issues and I'm, uh, you know, I don't know if you have the answers or something like that. A lot of times on this show, we talk about the lure of doping that have happened to a lot of these professional cyclists. They, they, 
they dedicate their entire lives, move to a foreign country or go to a faraway place. They're isolated. They're striving to achieve this ultimate goal, this ultimate dream. And something along the way causes them not to be able to, to achieve that. So they're offered a choice. Um, the you know matrix reference, the red pill or the blue pill. In this case, it's cheat and achieve the dreams you want or stay genuine and honest to yourself and go back home and be a greeter at Walmart. Um, yeah, that, that's a bit dramatic, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my job. Yeah, I know it is. Well, you know, they drop out. They drop out of college. They didn't yeah. go to college. You know, I'm going to be a professional cyclist. I'm going to race in Europe on a, on a pro team, totally. and I don't necessarily have the genetics to do it. I am now given a choice. Yeah, totally. Well, and and the problem is, like, and I and I see this a lot is anytime you become so singular in your identity that you have no other facets or things that define you or interest you or skills, whatever it is, you lose perspective. So you have, you just described a perfect storm, right? You've got an athlete that's isolated alone in another country. All they're doing is training. They're just riding all the time. And so that's all they're fucking thinking about. And so then that becomes so total and singular of an identity that of course you're going to lose perspective and nothing else matters nothing and so like you have to have compassion too right like there's this there's this sad desperation to it it's like and and i and i think you know as much as the runner in me the the old athlete in me might get annoyed by shortcutting i understand and i and i would say do yourself a favor and get some fucking hobbies okay? <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's the answer like like you know being while being a, an excellent athlete while being an elite athlete requires a bit of singularity there's there's an arc to that and we can go over the edge And so have like check in with the important people in your life and be like, have I gone crazy? Am I too far? Right. Like get some perspective, get out of your own head, Uh, doing things like gardening. Right. That doesn't take a whole lot of physical energy, but it connects you with something outside of your own fucking body and your own head and your own goals. And that's really important. Get some hobbies. We we just had one of a pro rider in the Peloton just retired recently and he retired fairly early in his career. And you could tell that was, it was that moment. He, he kind of stepped outside for a second, took a little time yep. off and went, this is crazy. I can't do this anymore. And, and, yeah. and you could almost yep. see even in the, even in the letter he wrote to as a press release, you could almost yeah. read the freedom in his speech, <laughs> the release yeah. of just being able to go, I don't need to do this. Yeah, that that freedom, that's beautiful. My wish is that we could feel that more often in whatever we're doing. Yeah. You don't have to quit things. You don't have to transition out to taste that sense of um, ownership over your own experience. Wow, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I kind of want to understand things from um, your perspective with working with Paralympics and what kind of a of a program and support system there is for that that type of work. Um, OK, sure. Yeah. 
shifting gears. Yeah. Well, it just, <laughs> just, I, before, right. you know, I, I'm running low, low on time and I kind of want to understand things from that perspective. It's something that I don't, I'm obviously not experienced yeah. and, and I just would love to know okay. how that all works and what kind of support you talked about the separation from the, the Olympic committee yeah. itself. Yeah, well, well, so I'm still housed under the Olympic Committee. I'm a separate division, which is okay. It's all right if you don't. It's complicated and um, probably overly complex, but that's kind of the story. And so I don't know. I like it. as the first and only, I uh, built uh, this sort of tiered um, support structure with the guidance of Matt Kramer. So Matt Kramer is my supervisor, my boss, and he actually, he was a cyclist himself. He ran the Olympic mountain biking program. He's uh, super knowledgeable and taught me everything really that I feel like I know about cycling. So, you know, and Matt took a huge risk on hiring me straight out of my postdoc. So I, I really owe, I think, everything to Matt. Like he's been a tremendous support for me and, um, he had ideas about what he what he was thinking would work, and it's been my job to sort of figure out processes and figure out ways to execute um, and build a structure around the athletes that makes sense. So it's like, okay, so do we offer, if there's only one of me, is it really best practices to offer all 22 or whatever it is right now, uh, sport Paralympic sport programs, one-on-one sports psychology services? Yeah. No. So how do we figure out how to, how to tier that? Is it based on medals as they do on the Olympic side? Okay. If that's the case and we have a mental health crisis, how do we manage that? How do we set up referral processes, all that stuff? So that's a, that's a big administrative piece that I do aside from the direct contact I have with athletes and coaches and uh, NGBs or their high performance directors. And and the comp the competitions themselves, as far as the you know the calendar of, of things go. I mean, I'm just terms of what is yeah. that like and how how often does it occur? Yeah. It's the same. It's yeah. the same. We have a quad. Um, you know, so I guess backing up a little bit. So Paralympic athletes are athletes that have physical disabilities. Yeah. Sometimes they're neuromuscular, but we're talking about a loss of a limb um, or uh, like a visual, uh, like a blind athlete or yeah. a visually impaired athlete. So they're not fully blind, but they're losing their vision. Uh, oftentimes I encounter athletes that were very, very high level, able-bodied, we say athletes but then something happened yeah. right and then they become a paralympic athlete and so what does that mean so the calendar of events are the same um sometimes with some sport programs you'll have like with triathlon the para triathlon and uh the able-bodied triathlon olympic triathlon they they call it a little bit complicated but anyway they tend to compete at the ex- at the same time but they have world cups yeah uh, world series, uh, world championships, and then the games. And then with other Paralympic programs, you have the same kinds of events. Um, but the timing is like, uh, just sort of staggered from their able-bodied counterparts, but it's the same process, right? The idea being that we, uh, that they want to sort of create a culture where Paralympic programming is really parallel, operates parallel to the able-bodied yeah. side. 
And that means getting more and more athletes and increasing the depth of the field. I mean, paracycling is a great example of a sport program that has a tremendous amount of depth and is very, very competitive. And there's all this classification. So you're trying to make sure that athletes are competing against like athletes. And it's a bit complicated, but, um, it sure is interesting. And I love, I love working with all those athletes. They're, uh, just really neat people. And I'll tell you, they teach me as much as I, as I hopefully teach them. Yeah. Well, um, Sarah, I'm running low on time, but I, I do want to, I do want to say, um, I think barely just scratched the surface in terms of some of the expertise you're dealing with and, and, and you work with on a regular basis. It's got uh, just the the depth alone, uh, you know, and I, I'm not even having the opportunity to get into the fact where I want to know what the hell's wrong with Karsten and why he's so scared to come to Spokane and race Paul down a hill. <laughs> okay. 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 So is that a, to be continued? Well, maybe we'll continue the conversation another time. I think it's just, it's just, I, he's, you know, something's going on. It's, it's a, it's a father <laughs> issue. It's, um, you know, it's just, or maybe Paul reminds him of his father or something like that, you know, oh, no. you know, Oh, no, yeah. definitely. Me of my father. Don't get me started on his Oedipal complex. <laughs> oh Jesus! <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm. Hey, I yeah. had to go. Yeah. Um, hey, Sarah, this has been really uh, for me. It's been a very enlightening interview, um, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. No, thanks for having it's been, me on. It's been fantastic. Yeah, so, I'm happy to chat anytime. I think this stuff is so fun and interesting to think about together and you know like i said i i learn as much as i give hopefully so So yeah thanks for having me you bet you're in switzerland now what what has you over there and where are you off to after that i'm headed home after that i was here for paratriathlons world championships and then i stayed on to work remotely because uh the back and forth was starting to take a toll on the old body so (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm here until the 12th and then I head back to the States and hopefully I'm stateside for a bit. Uh, one of the things you find with those of us that travel a lot with different teams is that we kind of try to stay focused on what's right in front of us. So, I mean, to be honest, I'm like, wait, where am I going? What (laughs) what did I say I was going to do? It's, it's almost protective not to think too far ahead in the future, but I think I'm going to be able to stay put for a bit, at least until October. All right. So. On. Well, uh, again, thanks for your time. We had a couple moments where we had to try to kind of make this schedule work and everything like that. But uh, I was really appreciative of being able to have this time to talk with you and get to know. Oh, me too. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Fun. And there you have it, another episode with Karsten in Bend. But what made it even better? Dr. Sarah Mitchell provided some really cool insight. If you, there was contact information on, in regards to her, um, and I'm sure you can follow her and read the articles up on her. But if you're really interested in the elements of sports psychology, I, my first recommendation would probably be lining yourself up with some sort of a coach and dialing in those elements and things like that and trying to find if it's motivation, if it's um, you know inferiority and you know feeling you're not strong enough to compete at these types of levels. But there's also, believe it or not, um, And this is not a paid endorsement in any way, shape, or form. 
the uh, the Sufferfest has the mental training program that I suggest would be a, an interesting way to start before you have the ability to physically speak with somebody and try to and gain insight into some of those things. But um, really, really cool way. I'm personally a little bit more motivated to try and explore some of those elements of the sport and seeing ways in which to improve just not beyond the physical realm, but also the mental realm, which we all know is so darn important within these sports. You guys, if you are liking the podcast, please subscribe to us. Uh, check out our YouTube channel. We are on every realm of social media, obviously. Tell a friend about us. Get uh, let's, let's keep building the audience. Thank you for your feedback. Who knows? You never know. Someday I'll be out of the basement and we'll be in a big old expensive club. We could call it like Bushwood or something like that. And if you get that reference, welcome to being old. We will catch you next time on The Pack Filler. 